Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Armchair Producers, episode 74. My name is George Terran. I'm one of your hosts for this evening, joined by the man, the myth, the moving legend, Mr. Travis Cook. How are you? Ben? I am fine and dandy. Uh, lockdown 2, electric boogaloo, just uh, trundles on. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun and games abound here yeah. in... Uh, I've chosen not to call it Melbourne anymore. We are now officially the Forbidden Zone. The Forbidden Zone. I like it. I like it. It feels like we're the Australian knockoff of um, No Man's Land from Batman. Pretty much. Or, or a bit like Escape from... It's a bit like Escape from New York. True. <laughs> if I even built a wall around, it'd be less fucking idiots driving out to the country for holidays. See, I, I think America has proven that walls don't work. Yes, this is a fair point, And it didn't stop Snake either. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, we are continuing our chain movies. Last week, we talked to you all about the classic, wonderful With Now and I. And following on from that, we had Richard Griffiths, and we are picking out the Tim Burton classic with Richard Griffiths in it, Sleepy Hollow. So we're going to be talking about that. I am... Three and a half seasons into Breaking Bad now, and um, Travis had a bit of homework to watch a Norman Wisdom movie, which I haven't got to this week. Unbelievable! But I have, I have, I have located one. You have located one. Okay, that's that's all right. I I delayed my um, night uh, my week, so that's fair. But we've got um, a few things to talk about, so we'll get straight into Sleepy Hollow, shall we, Grant? Do that. Um, and so, this is the 1999, I think, forgotten Tim Burton classic. Um, now, this uh, is obviously based on the famous uh, Washington Irving story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. Bob Crane is sent to Sleepy Hollow to investigate the decapitations of three people, the culprit being the legendary apparition the Headless Horseman. This Played beautifully by Christopher Walken. In Christopher Walken as the Headless Horseman, who doesn't have a line of dialogue, but that amazing, amazing face. Yes, um, yes. We have Ichabod Crane played by uh, Johnny Depp in his prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, his love interest slash femme fatale um, of sorts, played by yep. uh, Christina Ricci. She plays mm-hmm. Katrina. We have Miranda Richardson playing Lady Van Tassel, Casper Van Dien, the, uh, the the most beautiful man in the cosmos, um, playing Brom. I didn't even know he had a name. Um, <laughs> the man with no name. Richard Griffiths is in there. Ian McDermott is in there. Unfortunately, Jeffrey Jones is in there, which is a bit creepy. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael Goff's in there. Um, it's 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 a wonderful, wonderful cast. Yeah. Uh, and I'd also like to note a wonderful little cameo from Christopher Lee, which I enjoyed yeah, seeing. Absolutely true. And you're guessing Miranda Richardson. Sorry? Miranda Richardson. Miranda, I didn't say Miranda Richardson. You did? I did. Okay, well, <laughs> screw me then. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is, um, this is uh, scored by, of course, none other than Danny Elfman, who is... Um, yeah, Tim Burton's favorite composer. Yeah, um, they had a great collaboration starting with um, you know, Batman in 1989, and yeah, uh, right well, I think he even did uh, the Herman movie, right? 
not sure. I think he might have, because he was, of course, I was talking to Caroline, who watched this with me on the weekend. I was pointing out Danny Elfman was originally a rock star. Yeah. Uh, who yeah. made that slide sideways a little bit like others have. Yeah, he did uh, Boingo Boingo. Boingo Boingo. Um, um, but he also, interesting, he also did like other films, you know, Dick Tracy, and of course, Danny Elfman's one of the most in demand um, film you know, composers yeah. going yeah. around today. Um, I hadn't seen this, I think, uh, for about 20 years. It is available in Australia on, streaming on Stan. Yes. So it's probably available elsewhere. I think you can buy it and download it mm-hmm. via all your usual. It's available on Prime Video as well. All your favorite places you want to watch <laughs> it. Uh, easy to find for once. Um, as it hadn't been about 20 years since I saw this, and I was absolutely extremely pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed watching this again. It, mm. Not for one minute to drag, or was it like, oh, this is old, this yeah, is yeah. You know, aged poorly. This film has aged extremely well. And I would, even the special effects. Special effects in particular, I mean, like the only real noticeable special effects in this are those of the Headless Horseman. Mm. Where, uh, where, the, where the head reattached at the end. Or the, the tree that the Headless Horseman jumps out of. Um, that works pretty well. Oh, I'm not saying it badly. Those are probably just the only really noticeable CGI yeah, there's probably other CGI going on in the film, but um, you, it's one of those little subtle CGI things that mm. probably you're not really supposed to be noticing it. But mm. you're right, that holds up really well. Uh, for my opinion, is why it held up so well is the whole film looks like it's been shot on sets. It and was. Because, which, of course, it was. <laughs> they didn't actually go back in time to a fictional place. <laughs> no, but I mean, the, the, the whole forest, they built an indoor forest to film it all in. And it was, um, at least up until a few years ago, I think, the biggest internal forest soundstage, essentially. I would believe it. I think why that works here is where some filmmakers might build an indoor forest and make it try and look real. Like, you wouldn't even notice it's an indoor forest. Tim Burton doesn't have that problem. He's not interested in realism, necessarily. Yeah. He's not interested in building a set that makes you forget it's inside Pinewood Studios in London, right? Yeah. yeah. It's highly stylized. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's open to using things like wonderful matte paintings as a background occasionally. I see their matte paintings. I feel they look like matte paintings. They could be CGI, I guess. Um... And the whole thing has that really Burton-esque vibe to it. Where, and you saw the same thing in the Batman films he directed mm. in you know, Edward Scissorhands, um, uh, Sweeney Todd later on. Whereas, you know, he, he has that classic look of, yeah, it looks, if you stop and look at it, you go, that's a set. Yeah. It almost looks like a theatre set in a way, like parts yeah. of it. Um, but w- because you, because it's, it sort of fits in with the whole aesthetic of the entire film, it's it just works perfectly with what he's trying to do with mm. his directorial style with the costuming and uh, the lighting everything works perfectly mm. together to feel that sort of weird sort of burton-esque gothic nature and in this if there was a i mean people remember when he, he, he directed alice in wonderland people were going oh of course but i think before that it was like sleepy hollow of yeah. course yeah yeah but i think the the whole thing the, the aesthetic of a film and making it look like it's a set and not being a fr- and the whole stylistic choices he makes means he doesn't look aged or dated at all because he's not relying on CGI. Yeah, yeah. His style doesn't age. Absolutely, Absolutely right. right, and it really highlights how good he works with uh, within his idea of 
the fairy tale. 99% of his movies that he's ever made are essentially fairy tales of some variation or other. You look at Ed Wood and it had that hyper stylized pastel style to it. Um, this, obviously, Alice in Wonderland, even Big Fish, there's, there's that fairy tale element to it. Sorry, Archimedes is asking to come in. The dog is asking to be let in, so our guest host will be with us in a moment. Archimedes will have something to say about it, I'm sure. But um, what really lends itself so well to this is I think cinematography is truly funny because so often when there's that moody, foggy night, this is a lot of that. It's so beautifully volumetric and it's used to basically create a character out of the forest that's nicely behold. And it feels very claustrophobic in spite of how rural and distant and alone it feels as well when he's kind of saying, oh, there's a little town up Hollywood. It's it, it feels bizarrely close and insular. It's almost like a quarantine medium in its own right. It's um, actually the cinematography is by Emmanuel Lubezki, whose name doesn't scream familiarity to me. Hmm. He is a three-time Oscar winner um, okay. for The Revenant, Birdman, Gravity. He was also nominated for Tree of Life, The Children of Men, The New World, A Little Princess, and he was nominated for Sleepy Hollow as well, which I think is... I can see that. Yeah. yeah. So Looking at the way that the movie shot, the way that children of men did that gritty, sort of like muted greys and brown, and that's what Sleepy Hollow is passed with. The only real light is from fire. There's no daylight. That, exactly. The whole thing could be set at night. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree with you 100%. I think the cinematography is a real standout here. It's amazing, and it's it, it does really evoke a, a very creepy sense. I, mm. I think it goes as far as say this may well be, I think, Tim Burton's scariest movie, if that's possible. I don't... I mean, I mean, Edward Scissorhands not really... I mean, he's not really done a straight horror film before. No, I don't think he has. It's definitely got that creepy chill factor to it. But with the kind of buffoonish nature of Ichabod Crane, certainly in the first half of the movie... It has that Tim Burton-esque whimsicality. Um, it, 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 it does it nicely because you've got the, the creepiness factor. You've got some gore factor going on. But as mm. you sort of said, the whole way through, we've got the, the sort of a light-hearted mm. nature of, of Ichabod Crane's character being kind of the butt of a lot of jokes. Yeah. Um, and this is what Johnny Depp does so well in, mm. in Tim Burton films in particular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I don't think there's a single kind of lacking actor performance in it either. Every single person who comes in, like um, Christina Ricci as Katrina Van Tassel is beautiful. She is this slightly creepy element to her character, the way that she, like, there's just little bits that it's designed to be creepy, like cutting off birds' legs and throwing them into stuff, but she's so caring and considerate and She's always dressed in white. There's that duality to her that plays really well. Miranda Richardson is creepy as fuck, and I love her for it. Michael Gambon, 
kind of feels a little proto Dumbledore because he's trying to play this older Gentile fellow, um, but he's kind of out of his depth and he's being played played for a fool. Casper uh, Van Dane is great as the the other handsome man. <laughs> handsome, you know, brave, uh, foolhardy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think of um, the character of Gaston from you know Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. You know, like that really sort of really arrogant. You know, like yeah, what are you do you're gonna fuck with me. I'm six foot four. You know, I'm like full of muscle, right? Yeah. yeah, and then the, the like, Council of Elders, so Jeffrey Jones, Richard Griffith, Tim Deerhart, and Michael Goff. They're just a wonderful monthly crew, and I, I wish that there was a movie that you could just, almost like Ancient Eleven. <laughs> where it's, really cool. it's like a scene where he walks into the party, Ichabod Crane walks into the party, and everybody's there, including your, your, your eldest Eleven. Mm. Um, and it almost feels like, you know, parts of it almost feels like a murder mystery to start with, right? It yeah. feels like something like Gosford Park. You know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in a way, um, Johnny Depp's almost the uh, the Stephen Fry character from, from that film, the, the buffoonish detective who comes in and sort of stumbles upon the the, um, the culprit all the same. Yeah, the, the, the opening, that murder mystery-esque kind of thing, because suddenly clicked into my mind, Knives Out. Mm. It's, it's like, like a, a Tim Burton take on that. It just kind of feels like that kind of thing, and then obviously it goes off in its own way. But it's it's great. It's really, really delightful. This was, this was a, a nice little gem for us to watch, I think. I, I would also like to point out, I think the action scenes are fucking outstanding. Mm. Like, there is towards... The, as the film moves on, there is some fairly heavy action scenes and chases, mm. horses and stuff like that, and they are handled beautifully mm. i don't think tim burton's a, a director we necessarily associate with, associate with with action movies or a great action film director though the, the first two batman films certainly had their fair share of, did of, they really um, have... the second one in particular had that really great scene at the start where it was the circus performers and batman sort of goes through with the car and stuff and fights them off um that's essentially a big stunt, though. There's, there's not actually real fight choreography or anything in it of a particular state, whereas this one, he really collects them off. Because, you know, Jenny Jeff is kind of wrestling around on top of the carriage and being dragged around by horses and things, and he gets in nice and close with some of them, and it works it's really well. It yeah. doesn't, feel, doesn't feel forced. Mm. It doesn't feel out of place. It doesn't feel like... Some films you watch and they'd be like a car chase mm-hmm. or something, and it'd be like, "What?" Um, and I mean, it feels within character as well for the people that are doing it. You mentioned Knives Out. There's a car chasing Knives Out, but yeah. it fits. Um, yeah. You know, this is a horse chase, so like more like something you might see in a western. So mm. in a way, he's actually kind of, you know, inserted some problem. I, mean, I don't know if Tim Burton's a fan of westerns. It never really occurred to me that he was. But, mm. I mean, he's inserted some classic sort of Western bits from, you know, um, you know, cowboy movies that you might see, you know, with him as he's sort of landing on the horse backwards and stuff like yeah. that. Um, so it, it's really been... I would just like to show that there were some good car chases in the first Batman movie. Um, the first Tim Burton, 89 Batman film. I don't want to do, have him you know, come up short. I don't, I don't want to get a sternly worded letter from Tim saying I've, <laughs> I've sold him short. 
Um, but uh, even the action scene fits. The actions mm. scenes fit perfectly in it amongst. It serves the story well rather than, oh, okay, we're at that moment where they're satisfying a certain demographic. Okay. The third act needs an action sequence to keep the kids interested before they tune out with their smartphones because there were no smartphones in 1999. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the, the ending is really muted as well. You know, the, 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 the culprit gets their comeuppance. And it's, and it's grisly, stupidly grisly. And then it, the, the, in almost the anti um Christian Anderson style fairy tale where it usually ends up really dark, this one has more options to it. Which is, again, probably against type for someone who, Burton, who's yeah. well known for dark, you know, moody films. Yeah. Um, but they're dark but moody but lighthearted. And I think this is a, a wonderful example of... of mm what it is him at his best i think mm. i think his work in the 90s was probably his strongest years mm. um and i know that's probably going to be a controversial call for fans of, of mr burton out there i mean we're coming here we've gone uh we've gone from beetlejuice mm-hmm. to batman to edward scissorhands to batman returns to edward to mars attacks to sleepy hollow mm. now, that is a hot hot run of films though some people don't like mars attacks I do. Mm-hmm. Um, even some people like the Planet of the Apes, which came next in two thousand and one. Felt it was kind of a miss for me, and it's been a bit hit, hit and miss since then. You know, Big Fish, Charlie and Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, Sweeney Todd, Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows, um, and so on and so forth. And then we end up with Dumbo, which is uh, yeah. And now Bridges Two apparently is the next thing on his agenda. So yeah, I don't, uh, think I don't see that like the look of that. But um, yeah, in Tim, we trust. Um, but that's a hot, hot run of films he's making. And he was really on his game, and he worked so well with Johnny Depp back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's if you haven't seen, I feel like as I said at the start, I think this is a forgotten classic. I think this gets lost in the mix of all the films that that he's made over the years. People very fondly remember Edward Scissorhands, mm-hmm. Batman now because we were talking the other week that Michael Keaton might be coming back. Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, when he Todd to a degree. Uh, people love Alice in Wonderland. That made all the monies. Yeah, I um, but I think this is the one that this is probably I would say that I think this is maybe in his top three films he's ever made. Uh, Ooh, in my what would your top three Tim Burton movies be? Edward would be one. Right. Um, I would off the top of my head, I would give it to Beetlejuice and then Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. Oh, see, I don't think I can settle on three from the top three because Edward is great, Beetlejuice is great. This is great. Big Fish is beautiful. And personally, I think it's probably his most grown-up movie. Um, and, you know, everyone's got a soft spot in their heart for the original Batman. I mean, I am a huge fan of Burton's Batman. I think it's massively underrated simply because um, the Nolan films are so good. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think now there's a... It's interesting, there's a level of nostalgia for those films, as I said, mm-hmm. that Keaton's become such a big star that, you know, people look back fondly. Uh, I think there's a nostalgia, even for stuff like Mars Attacks, years on. Yeah. I think yeah. he was maybe ahead of, a t- ahead of his time with that one. But, I mean, it, it's certainly arguable. I think this deserves to be in the conversation. Mm. For the, I, I, I think for, for part of that top three, I think it's one that is mm. not... I think it slips under the radar of people when they think it, when they talk about Tim Burton. This isn't one that they talk about. And it probably should be, because I think it's as good as anything he's ever done. 
It does actually bring up an interesting uh, thought process thinking about Tim Burton's Batman, especially the controversy, I suppose, around that with Tim Burton being a Batman director, Michael Keaton being the Batman. There was a lot of controversy about that, and every, no one had any questions or qualms about Jack Nicholson being Joker. And then every Batman movie since, there's, it feels like there's been some unusual casting or controversy around the casting of characters since then. Usually it's been about the Joker. Like you look at Heath Ledger, people were kind of going, really? It was Joker? And then he silenced everyone. Um, Jared Leto was Joker, and then in the spin-off thing, okay, that's a hard choice, and it was a wasted thing. There was kind of a non-entry to the side squad. Um, you think about Ben Affleck being cast as Batman. Um, you think of Robert Pattinson being cast as Batman. They, always, they seem to be willing to take the risk on that. Batfleck was controversial? Yeah. Uh, you're right. I mean, I remember, there's, um, if you haven't seen it, people, there's a wonderful documentary about called Superman Lives, What Happened? Mm. Uh, about the, the, the Superman movie that Burton might have directed. And I think I was talking again to Caroline about this on the weekend while we were watching this. Like, I think now... When you look at the form he was in in this period of time in his career, I would have fucking loved to have seen. I know there was, was a whole meme about like the suit um, mm. and the shots and stuff that they that leaked out of Nicolas Cage wearing a suit, but I would have loved to have seen what he did with that felt that character. And especially with Nicolas Cage at that time in Cage's career, that would have been. What are we talking? Rock face off, leaving Las Vegas. It's yeah, it was hot. At that point in time, of Con Air, he was super hot in, yeah. the, like, in the second half of the nineties. He was the one of the biggest actors on the planet before he became super fucking weird and yeah. just started making whatever. It's hard. And to... he's such a big fan of Superman as well. You gotta think that that would have brought out. Add into that mix, Kevin Smith wrote the script, or at least he wrote a yeah. version of the original script that I think Burton got other guys to come in and work on it as well. Yeah, so yeah. potentially. We were in a point where we may have had a Tim Burton Superman movie starring Nicolas Cage written by Kevin fucking Smith. Uh, he may have got a writing credit there, you know, depending on Talk how much... Talk about a weird what-if world, eh? Uh, and the, the, the documentary Superman Lives is a wonderful little documentary. It was crowdfunded. Hmm. Um, but they actually interviewed Tim Burton in the in the, in the doco. And I think he actually will talk about his bat, Batman film. And he, I think it's his line. He says... The internet blew up about Carson Keaton and the internet didn't even exist yet. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I always think of that. I would so love for them to go, all right, you know what? We haven't been able to produce any movies because of COVID. Let's do an animated version of that. We'll get Tim Burton in to direct it. We've got Nicolas Cage to do the voice. Basically bring the talent in and just go, okay, animated version. Another nickel. That would be super cool. I, I don't, I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> I would, it would just be a wonderful possibility. I mean, Tim Burton does animation. He's interested in animation. Exactly. So, I mean, like, it would be... He started as an animator, didn't he, for God's sake? Yeah, I mean, he's, 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 he's sort of gone back to a world of animation a few times, mm. stop, go, but you know, other types as well. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I don't think I'll be holding my breath for that one. But Nick would probably be up for it because he's up for anything. <laughs> It's true. They actually did pay, if you haven't seen it, actually, because they got crowdfunded so well, they actually did kind of do some rough recreations of scenes yeah. that were originally planned to be in the um, in the, in the the film. 
And geez, I think that film would have been incredible. It would have been incredible. Like there's a story where around but when Brian Singer was making his version of Superman, he took the he had the photo of Nicolas Cage in the Superman outfit in his folder with him every day. And whenever any of the studio execs would give him shit, he'd be like, get it out and he'd go, you were going to make this. You were going to make this movie. And <laughs> it became a joke, but like, sorry, Brian, if you're not in jail yet. Um, I didn't yeah. say that. Um, you, you know, it's, um, his film's the mean now. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, no one likes that movie except me. <laughs> So it, it would have been hot. So next week, though, we, we, I think we, we, we got a treat this week. I think we're getting a treat next week. We did agree. Yeah. This week we're going to move on um, to, I think I think I could say it's one of my favourite sci-fi movies. Yeah. Uh, and that film is the uh, 1998, 1997, um, Paul Verhoeven masterpiece. I'm going to use that word liberally here, masterpiece, the Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, this is a beautiful satire parody that probably is even more poignant today, considering how social media channels and things like that work with every single person, except us, because we're terrible at it. So, like, oh, click the bell to subscribe and all of that stuff, and pop ups coming up onto the screen. Would you like to know more? Yeah. <laughs> no one wants to know more about armchair producers. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I think Paul Hoven is, is one of my favourite directors. I mean, even Showgirls has something to advertise it for. It's, it's kind of so awful it's good. Um, but Starship Troopers, we are following the uh, the most beautiful man in the cosmos, Casper Van Dien, mm-hmm. to, to this film. I think this is his breakout role, if you will, if he ever had a breakout yeah. role. He was the... Um, there's a wonderful Joe Blow what the fuck happened to his movie video on um, on Starship Troopers if you're interested to watch it um, but basically Verhoeven didn't have the money to cast names so he cast TV stars yeah. that's why we have uh, Denise Richards we have uh, Patrick Muldoon from uh, Melrose Place yeah. and we have uh, of course uh, Neil Patrick Harris from Doogie Howser mm-hmm. um, so uh, and along with your um, I think what we call them uh, character actors. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Ironside. Clancy uh, Brown. Clancy Brown. Uh, Rue McClanahan uh, is in there for a nice little cameo. And the cheap Gary Busey. Jake, Jake Busey. When you can't afford <laughs> Gary, you get Jake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is... A, this is a, I, think, I, think, I think Dina Meyer was on 90210 as well, actually. So it's, mm. it's a bargain basement cast. But well, I'm going to save it all for next week because this is. I love the top word for it. Humans in a fascistic, militaristic future war uh, wage war in a with giant alien bug. That perfectly sums it up. I, I think that the, the classic thing for me is we, we won't go too deep this week. Is that yeah. essentially just to give a taste of why I like it so much? Is this how the fuck this movie ever got made in 1997? Because it yeah. sure as fuck would never get made today. No way would this film get made today. It would be such a different movie. It's no one could have made it, but someone like Verhoeven. Yeah, uh, and and again, if you watch the Joe Blow video about this, it does explain, uh, in course, in Verhoeven's opinion, why he managed to get this film made. Uh, and I'll save that story for next week. Or you can watch the Joe Blow video. It's on YouTube. It's free. And they make wonderful, wonderful little 
little mini documentaries yeah. about cinema, I, I would recommend it. It's a, good, it's a nice little companion piece to Starship Troopers, but we will be talking that next week, so tune in if you would like to hear about uh, excellent, extremely good-looking Nazis. <laughs> All, right. All right. So, um, I am going to talk a little bit about Breaking Bad. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. So you're quite late to the Breaking Bad party. Purposefully so, because I was not able to get on the bandwagon when it first came out. And hype for this show, the ravenous family, even to this day, put so much expectation on this show that I was never going to be able to watch it and not have that effect so I've so given I've it a lot of pressure. Um, seven years at this point since it finished, excluding more from you. Seven, really? Is that long? Yeah, yeah it, was it was 2008 to 2013. 2013. And, and I have, I have to, to say, this is a very good show, but, but it is not one that, one that I personally enjoy. enjoy. Uh, what, what's your problem with it? Well... well Everything about it is brilliant. The cinematography for each of the episodes is phenomenal. The actors, Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul, primarily, are sublime in these roles. They have never been better and probably never will be because I feel like this kind of storytelling it is almost entirely focused on the characters and character development. It doesn't necessarily matter about what's happening around them. I'm in the middle of watching the episode Fly, where they're just trying to catch, you know, catch a fly in the, in the lab. And it is utterly pointless, except for expanding the character of each of those two and showing how much they've changed from when we first met them, basically. And that is a masterclass in um, character delivery. But I find a strange disconnect because there is that element of comedy throughout it all that doesn't quite feel like it's in the right place for me. Because we're dealing with very, very dark stuff a lot of the time. And then you have the brevity moment of the, the silliness of that. And you can't help but look at it and go, okay, that is silly. I see what they're doing, but it just. It, every time it happens, but they jump that kind of genre back a little bit, it pulls me out of it. And I can't get fully invested in it and say, yep, I'm into the ride, take me. It just, every time it changes that kind of feel, it just pulls me out and I'm like, oh, yep, I, I see what they're doing. Cool. That's impressive. It's not cool. I, I, I would have put money on you not liking the show. <laughs> no, I... I appreciate literally everything that, that everyone... No, I, think, I think the key thing for me is why I would have put money in you not liking it, though, is is what I call the Donnie Darko effect. Okay. Is that um, my now ex-wife, um, when we first met, that was when Donnie Darko had just come out, mm. and everybody had talked the film up to the fucking nth degree. Remember the hype about that movie, how it came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And someone had told her it was a scary horror film. Which you're like, what? Um, but anyway, she'd been told it was this amazing, incredible, scary horror film. And she went and saw it, and of course, it's not a horror film. Nope. Uh, 
so um, she, and because because of the amazing amount of hype from everybody she knew who told it, so couldn't possibly live up to those high standards. For me, I, I still to this day hear how good the wire is. And yeah. every time, I think three times now, I've tried to watch that show, and I get about halfway through the first season and go, "Does it get good soon? Like, what's mm. so good about this? Like, I guess it's shot well, and it's." I don't know, acting's good, I guess. Like, I just don't get what's so good about The Wire. But so, the amount of hype about Breaking Bad, it is so big. It's so ubiquitous as being one of the greatest TV shows ever made. I don't know how I could possibly live up to that hype. It's not that it's not living up to the hype, because it's generally actually kind of the quality that I can see is worthy of the hype. Just a person, just purely personal. It's not the kind of show that I feel invested in. I'm going to continue watching till the very end, um, especially because even to this day, I, my mind is haunted by the episode Ozymandias. That is so high on everyone. Are you enjoying this story? Are you finding yourself keen to find out what happens next at least? No. I don't know how that's possible. Because I look at the character of Walter White and I can see his character development and every single thing makes logical sense. Brian Cranston is fantastic at emoting and taking you on that journey. And the same with Aaron Paul's character. But it's just not connecting with me personally. And I know, I never, I wouldn't say, actually, when people would ask me, I actually don't know that I actually enjoyed it. That's um, I endured it um, yeah. because each episode I found the show so insanely tense. Yes, like it, the very the tension they build is Vince Gilligan's amazing at it, um, and as you said, every, all the, the elements of the actual they put into the show are great. But obviously, I connected with it at a level you didn't because it mm. wasn't. You know, I was different anyway. You know, different tastes, different folks. Um, mm. But I found that I could never watch maybe more than one episode, maybe two at a time, because I would be worn out after two episodes of this because it is so tense. I'm not enjoying it as a viewing experience, but I am really enjoying it on a technical level. The the writing, the filming of it, the acting, it is all brilliant. It is master's level stuff. But as a, a general narrative to enjoy, nah, not for me. I wouldn't have thought, I would have, just, like I said, it just didn't feel me like the kind of show you would have liked. Mm. Um, but as I said, like, you sometimes, you know, things don't click. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I I picked up Spider-Man again this week on the PlayStation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Universal acclaim. Mm-hmm. Universal. But I just can't get into it. Yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's just not for, not, just not for Who everyone. Who personal space was coming to it? I know, right? Or, or like I said, The Wire. Mm. Universal. If there's a convers- there's usually a conversation about the greatest TV show of all time. It comes down to three. Breaking yeah. Bad, Sopranos, and The Wire. Yeah. Uh, now, I did love Sopranos, and I did love Breaking Bad, but I just can't get into The Wire. Um, so, so occasionally, one of these things is just not going to click with yeah. your taste in, in television, though. Um, I wonder, would you be interested in trying out Better Call Saul when you're finished? Now, the character of Saul Goodman definitely is the most enjoyable character, and I am curious to watch at least the first season to see 
if I enjoy it. But if it's more of a character piece, it's akin to Breaking Bad, like how Saul becomes Saul. Well, that's the story. But, I mean, we're at season five now, and he's just getting there. You know, so I'll give you that heads up about season one. It takes its time. That's, and I think that's one of the wonderful things for me about Breaking Bad mm. is it doesn't rush. As you've sort of said, they will spend an episode just building these characters. And so yeah. they've done the same thing with Better Call Saul. I think that is possibly one of the reasons why I'm not able to just fully invest is because it's, the, show, the show has kind of been spoiled for me with, you know, like I knew about the death of the girlfriend before that was going to happen because everyone was talking about it. Um, and just general plot points, like, okay, uh, it's been spoiled for me. And in a character-based thing, I think that's one of the few types of movie that, or, or movie narratives that can be spoiled for me because it's not, this is definitely not the show about, or the big action sequence, or anything like that. But, that's a fair point. So it's the same thing for me. If I went off and tried to watch Game of Thrones now, again, yeah, yeah. another show I just can't get into that everybody loves. Yeah. Um, I know about the Red Wedding. Like, yeah. I don't because so the, the, no, There's no actual build up in that situation. I know. Joffrey, I know how everyone hates Joffrey, and I know he he dies because, like, yeah. again, it just became part of the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, so that's what yeah. happened. So, uh, I know season eight sucks. Apparently, is it season eight? The last season sucks. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I know what happens at the end of it because again, people have been whinging about it now for a couple of years. So, yeah, so, it's someone who's never watched. The original Star Wars trilogy, and it's like, oh, that guy's Luke's father. You, you know it. <laughs> you haven't been able to escape that fact, and so the build-up and the, the reveal of it, it's not as impacting and as emotional. So, kind of being told, seeing this slow decline in the fucking evil man that Walt White becomes, is like, yeah, I, I already know how that's going to happen. So the Emotional weight of this is hugely limited. So there is, is a, there is some benefit to watching it as it sort yeah. of goes to air. Absolutely. If you can. Yeah, um, yeah. And I don't even know, I think it was on Foxtel here in Australia mm. um, when it was actually being broadcast the first time around. I, I just stole it because I don't want to subscribe to fucking Foxtel. Um, <laughs> okay, you may have actually had Foxtel back then. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was... You, it's it's one of those problems when you try to come to something years later. I mm. mean, for me, I think I don't I think I knew what the big end of The Sopranos was because that's another very famous final episode. Someone say the greatest final episode of mm. the TV show of all time. Uh, I don't know if I knew what happened, but it's one of those episodes where, well, spoilers if you don't want to know what happens at the end of The Sopranos. Uh, I'll loosely spoil it a bit here. Basically. The, the producers let you make up your own mind about what happens at the end. Yes. It yes. does not tell you what happens. Mm. So in that way, it was kind of impossible to be spoiled because it wasn't like, you know, Tony came out as gay and decided to become a drag queen or something. I don't, <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it, it's, it's open. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't, I remember there being so much debate and hatred for the way that it like, that is a whole fucking way to finish the show, especially one that was as highly regarded as that. And they wanted more, and they had the compromise. Yeah. 
So yeah. I will spoil it properly now, but there is a scene, Tony is in a restaurant with his family. There is an insinuation that people are coming to kill him and it cuts to black. Yep. yep. But the, the actual the guys, the creator of a show wanted something like a couple of minutes of black. Mm. He had to, <laughs> to negotiate with the, uh, the, the, the TV, the network about how much black he was allowed to have. I think it was 20 or 30 seconds or something in the end. Mm-hmm. And he wanted way more black screen than what he got. So um, I guess at that point in time, he had won enough credibility that he was able to go, hey, you know, yeah. I get what I want when it comes to my yeah, yeah. when you've created the fucking Sopranos. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I, I'm not sure Breaking Bad's ending is quite on the same level. But it's pretty good. I would recommend if you're still, if it hasn't put you off even more, to check out um, the uh, the movie from last year, the uh, Netflix movie. Which yeah. escapes me. El Camino. El Camino. As I thought that was, well, I enjoyed it because I enjoyed the characters. Did you enjoy the characters at least? It's hard to say that you enjoy characters in the break. You feel like you, are you invested in the characters? In, um... Jesse's character? Yeah. I, I think so. Oh my god, I fucking hate Skylar. Everybody hates Skylar! Everybody, even George hates Skylar. Thank you, it's not just me. No, burning fucking hell. It was a whole, this whole series of articles at the end of the season, the show when it was broadcast the first time about how it was an example of misogyny. Everybody was, it's why misogyny is rampant, it's because everybody hates Skylar. And I'm like, no, we hate Skylar because he's fucking annoying. Yes. Consistently annoying, breaks the scene so much. She's just infuriating, and not in a way that actually serves you as an audience to kind of get empathy for what Walter White's doing or any of the other characters around. She is just fucking annoying. If it was designed to make you empathize with Walter White more, then brave way of telling the story. Sacrifice someone whole performance because you are going to be a fucking asshole. People are not going to like you, but it serves the story. Much like the book will be played, Joshua. It was everyone hated him. He's forever going to be Joffrey the fucker. But it doesn't do that in every scene where there's is with Walter White, with your kids, with a fucking sister. She's just infuriating. She's, she's unbearable. And I've, I watched Scully again recently, which she's in. She has a small role in. Sorry, Scully, yeah. not Scully. And she plays exactly for her character. She's so annoying in that movie. Uh, like you do that so so well. Anna Gunn is wonderful. If that's what they, I assume that's what they intended her to do. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the real standout for me. I, I was very invested in those characters at the end. So I, I know a lot of people didn't like El Camino very much. Mm. Um, they thought it was a bit weak because no spoilers here you know Walt's not in it much mm. um, so you know there's like can Jesse's character carry an entire 90 minute 2 hour essentially episode mm. um, and the answer for someone who really is invested in those characters is yes but if you're not I can see how you you'd probably might find it a bit dull mm. and plus also you're going to be going so you're smashing through it right for me, mm-hmm. I've had nothing new Breaking Bad for seven years. And so, ooh, new content, <laughs> yay. Um, apart from Better Call Saul, it's like Bob Odenkirk is, is wonderful as 
as Saul in the show. And I'm, I would say, I would say, and I've said it before, Better Call Saul is arguably as good. Giancarlo Esposito, love him. Oh, yeah, he's incredible. And did you see he's going to be the bad guy in Far Cry Six? Yeah. And you're like, I think I said on Facebook, he hope he likes playing villains because um, he's good at that. He was, of course, he was in. He was the bad guy in the Mandalorian. Yes. Um, I would imagine somebody is lining him up to be a bad guy in a Bond film at some point in the future. Oh, fuck yes. I mean, if they make another film, who knows what the fuck's going on with the latest Bond film? I've heard they've gone to reshoots, but um, yeah, I can't. You've you've got to think that the big things that people are eyeing him up for: villain in Bond, villain in Marvel, villain in DC. You know, I, I I respect the man. He's just kicking back, getting collecting yeah. those checks, right? Like, I mean, make hay while the sun shines. Yeah, yeah. As, as they say, make you know four hundred pounds worth. And I don't imagine he comes cheap now, considering he's such a mm-hmm. recognizable face. Mm-hmm. But I honestly um, <laughs> think the problem is he would be. They would be like, "Hey, he's the chicken man." Um, you know, he like, they wouldn't actually. You know, I, I actually, I have to be honest. I saw his name, his face pop up in the um, Far Cry, Far Cry 6 mm. trailer. I'm like, oh my God, it's Gus Fring. Um, and I'm like, I don't actually remember the actor's name. <laughs> um, and uh, now I've looked him up and, yep, yeah, now I remember. He's actually, yeah, born in Denmark. Yeah. Born and grew up in Denmark. It's a piece of trivia for you. Uh, I'm glad you're giving it a go. You're a good sport for trying. I think I, if I was not enjoying something, I don't know that I'd push through to the end. Well, like I said, the quality of the show, everything about it is brilliant. It is not, on a technical level, it is not hard to watch because it is a masterpiece. And you always want to watch master's work as a just a pure entertainment. Mm, no, it's not entertainment. It's a hard watch. Mm. It's not. It's not something you kick back and put on in the background while you're mm. checking your phone. It's. It's. Yeah. It's, it's a hard said, watch. I think this is it's definitely the type of narrative storytelling that you get the most out of when you are watching it when it is totally fair and when you have a week between it, so you can kind of like guess what you watch. You can talk about it with your friends and actually build more of an understanding. Whereas doing it the way I'm doing and smashing it for four episodes a night, I'm not getting that. I don't know. I think I'd probably hate it too because that's a lot of Breaking Bad in one night. At some point you made there is it's fresh. Yeah. And like we said a moment ago, it's been spoiled mm. just through the zeitgeist and people yeah. sort of go, hey, it's been out for seven years. I'm going to, I feel comfortable now it's to talk about it. its own success in a way. In a way. Yeah, I, I can see it. it was difficult to go back and, and watch something so many years later. Yeah. What have you been doing? Well, what I was going to so I was going to talk to about this last week, but he had to go to the toilet. You know, um, we're <laughs> fucking professional like that. I'll get a colloquial bag fitted. Uh, yeah, that's the idea. Um, the new Australian drama slash horror film, Relic. Oh, now this has gone straight to streaming. This is available hmm. for streaming on Stan. Um, which is the Australian streaming service. I believe it's available in the UK. I couldn't say about other countries, but I would imagine it would be. 
um, I saw I got a review on the Guardian this week, and mm. it was glowing. It was a five star review. Wow. Um, interestingly, I posted I was watching this, and Shay asked me where it was worth watching, and I said, maybe. It's a maybe on the Shay scale. Okay. Um, so, a daughter, mother, and grandmother are haunted by a manifestation of dementia that consumes their family's home. Uh, in terms of people we know, there's a very small cast of this film. Probably mm-hmm. fairly low budget. It's strange. The name, the face I instantly recognised at the start of the film was that of Emily Mortimer, mm. who for me is best known from the news, the um, the newsroom, or just newsroom. Um, she plays Mackenzie McHale on Newsroom, which is one of my favourite shows. Um, she's been in a few other little bits and pieces around the place, including Mary Poppins Returns, Lars and the Real Girl, Match Point. But you're probably going to recognise her face. She's one of those faces that kind of you see around the place without being necessarily a big star. If you're Australian, you might recognise Robin Nevin as the grandmother. Uh, she, for me, was, <laughs> she was in the castle. She was in one scene in the castle, which is... <laughs> Um, a classic Australian movie. She's in a couple of the Matrix films as well. Uh, and the other main star is the the daughter of the, the youngest cast member, Bella Heathcote, who okay. plays Sam. And uh, she was in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is an awful, awful, awful movie. Um, yes. But uh, she's in The Man in the High Castle as well, um, but not exactly a household name at this point in time. Um, this movie desperately wants to be the Babadook. Okay. Have you seen the Babadook? Yes. yes. Loved it. The Babadook is fucking great. If you have not seen the Babadook. Mm, so good. Um, one of the great Australian movies. Um, however, but I think essentially, I'm going to spoil the Babadook for you, is, but it, it's a metaphorical horror film. Mm. It's got a monster in it, but it's essentially it's about loss. If I recall correctly, it was a while yeah, ago yeah. since I saw it. The monster is like a manifestation of the char- one of the characters' loss of her partner or something. Um, so it's a very clever, aside from being very scary, is a very clever little horror film in a sense. It's like it's actually trying to tell. It's in a message through. It's, it's not just a supernatural, you know, guy in a hockey mask going stabbing people. It's it's got something going on behind. It's got something going on upstairs. Mm. And um, N- Natalie Erica James, who is the director and writer of this film, wants to do something desperately similar, but she fails, unfortunately, miserably. Oh. Um, I mean, honestly, if you put it in the title of your film, The Haunted by a Manifestation of Dementia that Consumes Their Family's Home, it's where is the Babadook, you know, where that film, what was successful about that film is it, it, it was a Trojan horse of a movie. It's a scary mm. movie, but it's got a message or, or something it's trying to say behind the monster. Mm. And if you just sat down and had a couple of beers and watched The Babadook with your girlfriend and, you know, felt good about the fact she grabbed onto you in the scary bits, you feel good about that. It's a scary movie, but yeah. it's got something, if you stop and think about it after, you're like, oh, they were doing that thing and that meant that, you know. But it, it wasn't up front and center with its message. It was it was buried. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Which I think is the way you'd want to do it. Whereas this one's up front going. It's about dementia. The monster's dementia, guys. The monster's <laughs> dementia. In case you hadn't noticed, the monster's dementia. You know, like it's just it's like, so. Sorry, it's a blunt. It's, blunt in, yeah. it's very blunt about it. Which I mean, 
is obviously an artistic choice by the director, but I don't understand it. Um, because instantly, like, so there's actually not a monster. You know, it's, it's supposed mm. to be scary, but, like, in this horror movie tropes going on, be like, there's actually no monster. Mm. The monster is inside their grandmother's head who has dementia. I'm like, well, that doesn't make it scary. Um, you know, and there's no payoff. Trying to be scary? Well, it lists itself as a horror film. Mm. And like I said, the use of horror film tropes mm. says to me, you're trying to be a scary movie. Little jump scares, you know, like, oh my God, the door open, there's scary noises coming from the other side. And, you know, um, yeah, it, I think it's definitely trying to be a scary movie. Okay. Um, but at least, at least to give off the impression of being, hey, I'm a scary movie, but I've got a message. Um, <laughs> so it, it's a little bit like a, a Mormon rocking up to your doorstep on Halloween in a sheet with ice cut out of it going, hi, boo, I'm scary. Here's a book of his, take this book that Jesus wrote. You know? <laughs> um, it's it, not really pulling it off. Um, so I don't understand that artistic choice from a director. Mm. Um, in addition, it moves at a snail's pace. Uh, it is. I was going to say it's only an hour and forty-nine minutes. Right? It's the longest ninety-minute film I've seen in a long time. Like, you know that thing you do when you're streaming something and you push the button to see how long's the. Where, you're, mm. oh, it's only sixty minutes. <laughs> half an hour of this to go. I'm like, I want to like this film. I love Australian movies. I wish there were more of them. You know, on especially on. For streaming services like Netflix and Stan and Prime. Stan at least Stan at least doesn't. Props to Stan. Uh, Netflix and Prime, not so much. Um, I'd love to see more scripted content, Australian content on these platforms, so I really want to support it. It's interesting, Stan I follow on Facebook, and they're constantly posting like, oh my god, The Guardian, five-star review of Relic. And there's 50 comments on there going, boring, I thought it was boring, I hated it, it was boring. Um, so it's one of those movies where it's, we've, we've got the classic audience, um, audience, uh, critic split. So it's got a 77, uh, on Metacritic. Um, it's got a six on IMDb. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what the audience score is, uh, on uh, Metacritic, but I, I don't imagine it's good as I just, my anecdotally, People you see who are commenting on those Facebook statuses say, eh, not so much. Yeah. So it's disappointing. Okay. Like if you're some, every now and again you see somebody who likes it. So I guess if you're really interested in the topic or you're really keen for something new and Australian, it might be a little bit creepy. Um, maybe my last complaint about it is how it was shot. It's okay. so dark. It is so dark. It's shot all in the dark and in a dark house in which nobody turns the lights on ever. And, you know, it, that could have been explained away with one line of dialogue. Oh my God, the storm's happening. And the, 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 the wires, the electricity's out. Uh, and I will apologize in advance if there was such a line and I just missed it because I was so bored. Um, but I didn't notice one. And at no point is anybody do that click, 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 click of a light switch. They're constantly turning on lamps. You know, little little lights in the corners. So the absolute bare minimum of light in every scene. I, I found it frustrating at how hard it was to see what was happening in this film a lot of the time. So I 
feel like I'm being hypercritical of this film. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen. Mm. But it was hard to see. It was kind of slow. It was pretty boring. And the payoff was non-existent. So uh, it's a thumbs down from me. Wow, that's a thing. To use the classic Roger Ebert, uh, Siskel and Ebert, you know, <laughs> approach. So thumbs down, unfortunately. It's on your it's on your streaming platforms anyway. If you're desperate, it's there. Do you think that part of the problem of it, this would have been retooled as just a straight drama and lost that attempt at horror? Do you think it would be more interesting? No. There's not a very interesting story here. Basically, the story is we have a mother who goes missing at the start of a film. We have the mother and the grandmother goes missing. The mother and the daughter turn up at the house of the grandmother to see if she's there, to figure out what the fuck's going on, to make phone calls, you know, put posters up, yada, yada, yada. A few days later, the grandmother turns up again as if nothing ever happened. Well, you know, I don't know where I was. Let's not talk about it anymore. La, la, la. Everything's wonderful. Um, And they sort of generally talk around the topic and not really push it too hard to figure out where the hell she's been. Mm. And there's kind of a vibe where we're trying to play it off. as like maybe something spooky and supernatural happened. But because it's advertising it at the front, what we're doing, you know, we're the, the manifestation of dementia. You know, it's advertising on its front. If it's fucking poster about what what it's actually trying to say is, you know, there's no monster. She's just got dementia. Mm. You know, I mean, it doesn't actually explain how the fuck she, you know, managed to disagree for five days and just turn up again with nothing wrong with her. Mm. Um, so it's that's not a particularly interesting story. I mean, if, if we take out the horror tropes, we've got a family movie about uh, a mother and a daughter trying to cope with the fact that their their beloved grandmother has dementia. Okay. How do you actually make that story interesting mm. and not just be a turgid melodrama? Have um, you seen the movie I Kill Giant? Sorry? Uh, have you seen the movie I Kill Giant? I have not. It's really good. It's, um, it was a young girl and she is kind of ostracized at school a little bit. She doesn't have any friends. She seems distant and she seems to go out into the woods to set up that for giants. And through the movie, you actually see these like half shadows at that kind of blinking and miss it moments of giant coming through or effect of giants happening on this. And, and as the story progresses, you find out what it actually means. And it's beautiful. It's really, really well done. I do recommend it. I'm not going to spoil the ending for you. Because it is worthwhile emotional journey. Um, but check it out if you can. I think it's on Netflix. Well, it. Like, it couldn't be much worse than this. And just to clarify, the Bubbledook has a 6.8 on IMDb. So, oh, no way. Wow, that's that's harsh. And I think that goes to show that when you're trying to do something different in the horror genre, you're. Mm. it's not an easy task. It is an uphill battle. If you're doing something, it's not just some guy in a hockey mask stabbing someone. Um, and you're trying to actually infuse your story with a little bit of subtext that can be hard work. Yeah. That's what people thought of the Babadook, because that film is fucking brilliant. For anyone yeah. interested, Babadook is apparently available on Prime Video. Yeah, that's a, I, that one's a recommend. A yes for the Babadook, a no for Relic for me. Incidentally, another movie that is now available on Prime Video is The Twisted Death of a Lonely Madman, directed and written by my brother, Will Tarrant. 
So check it out. Yeah. yeah. You have to kind of go via Prime Video website, not through Prime Video app. But you can, if you're a Prime subscriber, you can actually report it. No, that sounds complicated, but I would love to see it. Yeah, check it out. It has a six as well, so it has the same rating as uh, Relic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's, that's it. Yeah, um, that, that was the, 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 the main excursion cinematically for me this week. I, I have actually had a slight, um, uh, a bit of a gaming uh, revelation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I decided to roll the dice this week because I was... I've been playing a lot of Overwatch. Are you still mm-hmm. playing Overwatch? Um, I haven't had much time to actually jump on. But I've been I've been um, trying some new characters, which has been fun. But you know, mm-hmm. every now and again, you're like, I've had enough of getting my ass handed to me by who are people who are a lot better at that game than me. Um, so I want to do something a bit different. Mm. So I am um, I went on to Game Pass, and every now and again, you sort of cruise through Game Pass. You go, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, this time I like saw No Man's Sky and I thought why not let's give it a go um, now for the gaming public might be fairly familiar with No Man's Sky because um, uh, it came out about four years ago with a hell of a lot of pipe massive mm-hmm. it was a sort of like time vacation exclusive it was, and I think it was crowdfunded originally, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but anyway, it, I could be wrong. It, it was it had a big reputation as being having a, a, a theoretically infinite universe available for you to explore, um, and it came out and they made a whole lot of promises about stuff you could do at launch. You could do cross-platform, yada yada yada. You can play with your friends, and and there's all this shit you can do. And apparently, if I recall correctly, I wasn't really on board because I didn't have a PlayStation at the time. Um, was it basically broke? heap of those promises that it made yeah. to players and a lot of people felt very very cheated yeah. by the product that was available at launch and it sense it was missing a lot of those features that had been promised and it became it became a bit of a meme yeah for you know studios sort of uh, studios promising shit and not delivering mm-hmm. and you know basically you know shitty delivering essentially a broken game on launch um and I mean, like I said, I wasn't particularly fussed because it wasn't when I was planning on playing. Yeah. Now it's available on Xbox Game Pass, and the one thing I've been hearing consistently for probably the last year, eighteen months, is actually it's pretty good now. Mm. So the developer has been delivering consistently over the last four years a number of free updates to the game, to which at the point now where it's apparently it has all of the stuff and more that it promised at launch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, you can say what you will about that. That's actually maybe a danger. Some people might say that's a dangerous thing to actually endorse that as a good thing because that may encourage developers to continue to do the same thing, to, to deliver shitty broken games on launch and then go, oh, we'll fix it over the next year or so. Uh, I would argue that that's not the case in the sense that I don't, I don't think this game has been anywhere near as successful as it may have been had it not had that it's got that real stink about that name you see no man's sky like if you hadn't been paying attention to what's been going on development wise since you go oh well that's that broken game but didn't deliver anything um but anyway so this is as we said it's a procedurally generated infinite universe type game you wake up on a random planet you are a spaceman 
and you wake up next to your broken spaceship on mm-hmm. uh, you don't know who you are you don't know where you are you don't know what's going on mm-hmm. uh essentially the game then proceeds to direct you to go hey you know it might be a really good idea if you fix your spaceship and tends to guide you through a series of um gathering resources and crafting things to fix your ship then you need to do this and you need to do that and to get off world to start exploring the solar system to visit space stations and the universe afterwards uh now i'll be fair i'm literally probably i'd suggest 10 hours into what must be some of these games you can sink hundreds of hours into um and you know what it's kind of fun okay it's kind of good it's kind of like a space-based Minecraft. Okay. So there's lots of like, hey, you know, you're running around a planet. It's got a caustic atmosphere. Your spacesuit will protect you, but you need to constantly be renewing the resources in that spacesuit to keep your protection up. So to do that, you need to find certain types of resources on the planet to keep your, you know, keep yourself safe from the radiation or the caustic atmosphere, the poisonous atmosphere or whatever it is that's going on. So that's one thing you've got to constantly keep an eye on. At the same time, you've got to be looking for a particular type of resource that will help you build a thing that will help you build another thing that will help you achieve whatever intermediate goal you've got for your, yeah, your quest you're on at the moment. Um, the landscape is littered with you know, uh, relics and buried technology pods and all sorts of funky shit you can dig up and help you progress mm. through the game faster or learn things or level up. So it is certainly, there's more to it than, say, a, a, a Minecraft where you are completely up to you to make your own fun. Mm-hmm. There is a story. Mm-hmm. I don't know how good it's going to be. It's sort of slowly guiding you through at this point in time. And it's nicely integrated sort of a tutorial story going, oh, you need to get off the planet to continue the story. So to, to get off the planet, we need to guide you through how to collect resources and, you know, craft things to fix your spaceship. Um, it is quite a complex system. So there's mm-hmm. quite a bit to it. Um, and I think you, I do have a wiki open on my phone quite regularly for what's going on. Um, <laughs> it looks good. It chugs a little bit occasionally, but... Um, you know, the, 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 the landscapes are massive. Um, and, you know, I, I suspect at some point it might start to feel a little grindy, a little bit samey because it's procedurally generated. And, you know, you know, wow, wow, there's a you know, unique quadruped on this planet. Do I really care? <laughs> Not really. Uh, I just want to continue to find the things I need to build the thing I need to go to the next thing. But I suspect there's quite a bit going on here. It seems that they've really built a lot of content here. It seems like... My initial impressions, the further I go, is the deeper it seems to get. Um, it is a particular kind of game. It's kind of zen. It's kind of chill. That's right? what it's heard. Kind of, kind of relaxing in a way. So this is exactly what I was in the mood for after... If you got high-intensity adrenaline-pumping battles, and I'll go back to Overwatch because that's, you know, what that game's sort of about. But yeah, yeah. I've kind of been doing that for the last couple of weeks. I'm in the mood for something a little bit slower... Mm-hmm. Then that we, I mean, you can turn the difficulty up and make it a little bit harder and a little bit more um, intensive if you wish. But at this point in time, at the, the default level, it's a pretty zen sort of crafting, you know, 
space exploration experience in it. You know what? I would go. I don't know what it looked like at launch, but it's mm. a thoroughly decent game considering it's included on Game Pass. So it's essentially for ten dollars a month, which you know, all yeah. the games in Game Pass, it's free essentially mm. included in that. Uh, I don't. I think Xbox Game Pass is the best value in gaming going around right now. It's it's, it's great. great. It really yeah. is, and you know, kind of leeching off of that a little bit. Next week we'll be able to talk a little bit more about. The Xbox Series X, because Thursday slash Friday, there'll be the big Xbox Series X blowout of games, and they might be talking a little bit more about the console itself. But the word on the street is the Series X is going to be backwards compatible for Xbox One, Xbox 360, and OG Xbox through all of its game parts and um, uh Xbox Live and features, which means a fuck ton of games that you can just play. I've also heard that Xbox Gold will be potentially free. Yeah, that's the rumor. Yeah, so hopefully we'll have some information on that next week. But it really feels like they're going pro consumer all the way here. Like, I mean, when we remember, people forget that you launched the Xbox, they were like, you know, you need a di- you won't you need um like you won't be able to share games and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You need to be online all the time mm-hmm. until they're like, oh shit, people hate that. Uh, maybe we shouldn't do it. So yeah, yeah. the launch of the original Xbox was actually kind of bungled because of that. Um, it and really, that was the kind of every Xbox had to have the connect to had to have a connect. You know, uh, apparently the connect games are the ones that won't be backwards compatible. Mm-hmm. Did anybody keep mine? I tossed mine. Um, <laughs> But uh, the other thing it is also is worth mentioning is that I don't think it's available here in Australia yet, but Project X Cloud is That's right, coming, man. right? So you'll be able to, using a phone, stream any games, play your games on your phone that you own on Xbox, mm-hmm. um, which is fucking cool, right? Yeah. The rumor is that uh, kind of Xbox Live is going to be free and it's going to be a, a new mutated version where it's Xbox Game Pass, xCloud, and Live together for 15 bucks or something over here, which is one hell of a deal. It's a great deal, and in a way, that's kind of their pro-consumer sentiment is kind of what's keeping them alive because mm. PlayStation do have all the best games. Um, but they are promising um, more uh, first-party exclusives for Xbox uh, on this generation. I mean, there's rumors going around of a, a new Fable uh, yeah. game coming out. There's the uh, new Halo. A new Halo? Who gives a shit about Halo anymore? Well, apparently, um, something that I read today was the multiplayer of Halo Infinite is going to be free to play. And a lot of people love that multiplayer. Oh, yeah, so I haven't played a Halo game since Halo 3. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the first two Halo games are good, but I think, you know, it's... um. Uh, I think it's time to maybe maybe we're doing well. I'm sure they wouldn't make the games if they weren't selling a lot of them. But uh, there were there's been a lot of talk that there'll be lots of first party exclusives for Xbox this time around. I have to imagine Microsoft have realised mm. that um, they've been beaten the hell and back by PlayStation on that front this generation. And, and Switch is selling much more than Switch as well. I mean, they've got this you know classic you have the usual cast of, of, of Nintendo games, the Mario, Zelda. Speaking of segue, I picked up Paper Mario: The Origami King. Oh, yes, you were a little bit, a little bit fifty-fifty in this last week. Yeah, I just thought, yeah, fuck it. 
and it's very basic but enjoyable and it looks charming it seems to be it, I don't know whether to praise Nintendo for it or chastise them. They seem to have. Kind of, I've never played a Paper Mario game before. Tell me what it is. They're RPGs, loosely, basically. And the Paper Mario series, a thousand year war from the GameCube, I think it was, is like held at very high level. And everyone. Every time a new Paper Mario game comes out, it's like, oh yeah, you want it to be like that. And they keep kind of dumbing it down and making it more and more accessible and less of a story-based thing. And like the story for Origami King, I literally do not care about. The writing the story is actually really, really funny. Like there's some signs that you'll get to and it's like, oh, such and such mountain, you're here. It's just a very blunt, weird kind of comedy that they put into it. But the thing that Nintendo seems to be doing is themes their game based on crafting. Like the origami game, everything is paper, and it looks like paper, which is great. There was Yoshi's, uh, like yarn Yoshi, and everything is made up of yarn, and it looks adorable. And then there was... Um, couple of other ones like Kirby and things like that. Alright, let's build a game based on the, this material and the game doesn't really matter, but let's see if we can make that. And it looks beautiful and it looks like wool or paper or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, that's cool, but give me a story. And it's kind of frustrating. I think your initial thought was potentially it might have been aimed at the younger audience. It definitely is. 100%. How into Nintendo do I need to be to play, want to play this? You don't want to play this game. Not me specifically, but a person. Um, You're right, I don't. But, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't switched my Switch on for a month. You're a terrible person. <laughs> Should support local businesses and golf story. That's golf story? Yes. yes. It's um, a Victoria-based production company. It's brilliant. It's been funny. It's enjoyable. Uh, is this, is this like the Lee Caravello's putting challenge from The Simpsons or something? No, this is actually good. <laughs> but, the ball is in car park. <laughs> but, yeah, Paper Mario, it's, I think it's trading too much on ease of play because it is easy and it's very accessible in that you can, I think people have been showing videos that they can map everything to a simple Joy-Con, which is really good for accessibility for anyone who might have a physical means for controllers. Because Nintendo generally isn't very good at that. Nobody is. Xbox are the only ones who have actually specifically designed a controller for people with mm. accessibility requirements. Yeah. But um, aside from that this is definitely a younger person's game um it's enjoyable though and there is kind of a cathartic release like there's parts of the paper world that have been eaten and in that you throw confetti on it and there's something kind of cathartic and nice about repairing the world slowly but surely there's a money system in it but you get so much fucking money it 
does not cross my mind. It's like, oh, I've got to be careful. I might not be able to afford this. Like, yeah, I'll just rip some shit up. I'll kill some bad guys. I'll make more money. <laughs> There's no stress in the It's kind of delightful. It's, it's kind of brainless. So it sounds like, again, almost in some way, kind of a zen, relaxing game yeah. experience. Not really one you're going to have to feel a tension or stress from. Yeah, it's a perfect partner for while I watch Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you're gaming and watching Breaking Bad. I'm not sure. I, I, I feel like I suddenly feel a lot less confident in your review of a show if that's what you're doing. No, I'm not doing I watch Breaking Bad and then I hate Pedro Mario too. You would definitely, definitely need it after that. Yeah. Making some notes. I don't have anything else to talk about. I don't think I do either. I might have watched something else, but it's kind of escaped my brain. So, but and that's a that's a solid show for the uh, the Russian bots if they're still listening. Yeah. yeah, I think it might be possibly Indonesian boss at this moment. Indonesian boss this week. <laughs> Got is, there, is, there an, is there an election? Someone needs a rig in Indonesia, I wonder. <laughs> yes, we are for that. We are open to help in that front if it's if there's you know financial <laughs> assistance required, you know sponsorship involved in making, um, uh, you in know, top in, in helping publish George's next book. Yes. Well, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for watching. Next week, we will be talking about Starfleet Troopers, following on Captain Vagrian. Um, and I already have the next movie after that lined up, but I won't tell anyone what that is until... I've got to be honest. I, I really want to get us to watch an Australian film, and it's got Hugo Weaving in it. And so I was desperately trying to find the link between Starship Troopers Someone in Starship Troopers and Hugo Weaving, but I couldn't find one before the show went to air, but um, I'll just have to keep that one in my back. Well, the teams that I will give our connecting tissue to the next movie with Michael Ironside. That could take us anywhere from um, Total Recall to uh, Terminator Salvation. <laughs> you have had a very broad career. <laughs> he's a, he's a, well, a great character actor. True, true. Um, but there we go. Something to look forward to. Uh, you'll have to tune in next week to figure out what the chain, where the chain takes us to next. We should mm-hmm. be writing this down. I should write this down somewhere where the chains come from at this point in time. Um, I, got, I think I can actually go back. So we had Sleepy Hollow. Before that, we had with Mel and I. Before that was Hudson Hawk. Before that was King of Comedy. Um, before that was fuck. Oh, um, Shit. Legend? Yes. Yes, because it was the writer. The writer. Top um, Gun. Top Gun. Final Countdown. Final Countdown. And Philadelphia Experiment. Uh, Philadelphia Experiment. And before that was Streets of Fire. Streets of Fire, yes. Yeah, so, so we're, we're okay. Okay. <laughs> And we all started with Michael Pare. Yeah, like everything. <laughs> life, the universe, meaning of life, the universe, and everything is Michael Pare. 42 Michael Pare is in a room with a flashlight. That's it. So there we go. That's, um, <laughs> that's what we're doing, and we're going to keep doing it because we've got no new movies to review. Tenet was supposed to come out. 
next week, but <laughs> come on out anytime soon. And they still refuse to release New Mutants. Yeah, I don't understand that. What do you think? You're going to get a cinema release for that shit? <laughs> Stick it on a streaming service somewhere. Stick it on Disney+. Plus. Well, there's a reason they put Artemis Fowl on Disney+, Plus because they knew it was going to fall. And Greyhound as well. Apparently, that's not very good either. Mm. I think that's an Apple one. No, you're, is there Apple? You're right. I think, yeah. But anyway, the, the, the shit yeah. is floating to the surface mm-hmm. of the streaming services. Like, I mean, New Guard, but Old Guard, sorry, we talked about last week. Apparently, it's become one of the most streamed films on Netflix ever. Well, the things uh, are rather slim at the moment. So, so if there's one way to get your see your shit, your shite film seen by a lot of people, and that's stick it on a streaming service. Mm-hmm. You're in the middle of a pandemic. Yay, pandemics! <laughs> Until Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. Not just the pandemic people, but your films. <laughs> if your film is dead. Now is the time to dump it. Do you have a DOA on arrival system? Now, <laughs> like the Netflix guys, would be just ringing up. Go, you got any crap? Anything has been sitting on a shelf? I can't believe New Mutants hasn't come out yet. I know that can't be a good movie when it comes out. It's gonna be. Awesome. It's gonna be the Duke Nukem uh, three of new, new, of new movies. Do you reckon it's as bad as a new old movie? Sorry. Oh, it wouldn't possibly be could that bad, but I mean, you know, like... Um, Are we thinking on a par with uh, Josh Crane, Fantastic Four? I think that's probably more realistic. Mm. Like, it, you know, Uwe Ball films are just, you know, reprehensibly awful, but like, I don't even think it House of the Dead. There's a scene in the House of the Dead where they're supposed to be on a, a world's awesome rave on this island, and it's like four guys... And a DJ's tent that has Sega written on the side. It's like, at no point was there a decent rave on this island. <laughs> it's just terrible. <laughs> it can't be that bad. I'm thinking more of a sense it's going to be a mess. Mm. A mess of, they've had multiple different guys come in and edit it and slice it and dice it to try and make it look better. And you're just going to go, you're not fooling anybody. Yeah. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Stay safe. Stay safe. Good night. Good night.